Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 343, and today we are talking about books being released on January 4th, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, first Hello. episode of 2022. Yeah. Woohoo! Although we are recording this very early because of the way that Book Riot staff breaks work, so... Mm-hmm. We don't actually know that we all make it to the new year. Oh, no. <laughs> That's such a terrible thing to say. Doom and gloom. It's, what, the 22nd of December? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who even knows anymore when we're recording this? Uh, and we both already found out that a couple of the books that we wanted to talk about, the dates have been changed already. So we've been scrambling yeah. to find things uh, to talk about today. But that's okay. Things are still good, you know, and we get to talk about books, and that's the best thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, do you make reading resolutions, like, in the new year? Yeah, I've had 100 books as my resolution for quite a while now, and that tends to be, like, around where I hit. 2020, I did not come close. I could not read that whole year. But that's basically my resolution. I'm also trying a new thing with especially the books I read for all the books, I tend to draw them out and end up uh, only reading those in the month. And I want to make space for backlist books too. So I'm going to try to just read all the books books on the weekend and kind of just like batch that reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been trying and I haven't been entirely successful, but the times that I am successful, it works really well. So that's my experiment for the new year. What about you? Well, that sounds good. I actually uh, set aside certain times for a certain job reading as well. Although mm. my all the books reading is like throughout the week. And then I do my reading for my other job on the weekend. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of goals for this year. I wanted to read all of Stephen King's books. Again, I made it to about 10 or 11 books in. And then I traded them for the Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child series with Agent Pendergast and did not finish that one either, but I did make it 10 books into that one as well. But I realized, like, I did not read a lot of nonfiction this year. Like, Mm. I did not read a lot of nonfiction or a lot of books for middle grade readers or even young adult for that matter. Mm I read a lot of genre this year. I think I just leaned really heavily into things that I know make me happy. You know, Mm -hmm. like I love science fiction. I love mystery. And it was just like easy for me to be like, yes, those. But I mean, I love all kinds of books, but like I just kept picking them up for some reason. So Mm -hmm. I want to read more nonfiction. I think that's my goal like every year and I always fail. Um, And I want to read more indie press titles. You know, I didn't, I didn't read. Part of it is that You know, I don't request physical copies of books for the most part because there's not much space in my house (laughs) because there are a lot of books here. And indie press titles don't have as many up, 
you know, for grabs on the digital galley, mm-hmm. you know, sites. So um, I'm going to try and make a concerted effort to read more indie press titles this year. Uh, but other than that, you know, I'm not going to, I usually have like some goal, like, you know, read all of Stephen King or something like that. And I'm just not going to do mm-hmm. that this year because I'm going to give myself a break and, you know, just read as much as I can. Yeah, now that you mention it, I think I want to try to read less YA next year, too. I like YA, but I think trying to read on a deadline, I've been reading a lot of YA because they're pretty quick to get through, which is fine, but I want to read other books, too. So I'm going to try to vary it a little bit more next year. All right. Well, we'll regroup at the end of the year and see how we did. (laughs) Um, Oh, I have another story to tell you, but before we do that, we are going to hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so I know all of you have been waiting with bated breath to find out what happened, but uh, Danica, last week, Tirza and I started recording the episode, and I was getting so hot in my office. And, like, I usually get very nervous and I get very sweaty, but, like, I was getting so hot. Like, I thought I had a fever, and as the show was going on, I was getting more and more distracted, beginning to worry that there was something wrong with me, that I was sick, because I just kept getting warmer and warmer. And I even said something, I think, in the show to tears about like, you know, I feel kind of cranky because I'm so hot or something like that, you know. And I was so distracted, like thinking like, oh my goodness, am I getting sick? Is there something, you know. When we Mm -hmm. finished the show, I went out in the living room and we have a thermostat on the wall and we have a series of books and things in place to keep the cats from reaching it. But (laughs) 
My guess is the boys knocked it down, and then my cat Malay likes to get up there and rub her face on it, and she had turned the thermostat <laughs> up to 80. And so she was, like, cooking me in my office <laughs> while I was recording. I, That'll I mean, do it, yeah. I'm going to have to get one of those, like, plastic boxes like they have in, like, hotel rooms and stuff, because, you know, it was a problem, but we kind of just, like, it never occurred to me, because it's been so long since they've done it. This, like, mm-hmm. stack of books has always been there, so... Oh my goodness. I really was worried. I was like, something's wrong with me. I mean, I was drenched (laughs) in sweat and so nervous. (laughs) No, it was the cat. I should always know that it's just the cat. You know, like, you know, what's wrong? Oh, the cat did it, probably. (laughs) Yeah. Cats. All right. Now, on to the books. This is a great book to kick off our first episode of the year with because it's amazing. It is Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. It's a blazing debut that will just melt your face off, which if you're like me, you like having your face melted off in the best way. It takes place in the, in 2017. Olga is a wedding planner in New York City. She it works with like the elite. She works with the richest of the rich in the city, you know, like, you know, $300 napkins at the at the parties and the fanciest of stuff. Basically, like, if Olga was a person in succession, she's the person the Roys would hire to plan their weddings. And she also has a brother, Prieto, who is a congressman in Brooklyn. The siblings are, there are, like, the envy of their hometown. They have these amazing jobs. They get to do all these incredible things. They know a lot of people. They've worked very hard to get where they are. And... Part of it is because their mother left them behind when they were little. They had an unstable childhood. Their mother left them to be raised by their grandmother. And now it's 2017. They're in their 40s. Their personal lives are not what they expected. Their lives are not what they expected, even though they seem to have achieved all this stuff. And then Olga meets Mateo, who makes her heart skip beats like it hasn't before. And as this is going on, there are figurative and literal storms approaching their mother returns to town just as hurricane maria bears down on puerto rico which is where she is from their mother left them to become a revolutionary she had these these ideas about the world and these values that she hoped to teach them but she left them and they've sort of rejected her and her ideas it's brilliantly plotted. It's heart-squeezing. It's a heart-squeezing novel of family and race and politics and elitism. You know, these people have worked and they've made strides, but America is still racist and a difficult place for people of color to live. The characters are wonderfully complex and nuanced. They felt very real. I love when you read a book and it's like, it feels like these characters could have just like called you up and been like, oh, the day that I had. They feel very real. Is it too early to call National Book Award nominees? Because I think this is going to be one. Although my track record has not been very good lately at picking things. But I'm calling National Book Award nominee for this one. It's just fantastic. I want to give content warnings for mentions of illness, chemical use, suicide, and sexual assault. It is Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. And just first week of the year and you're calling National Book Award winners. Yep. I'm telling you. It's impressive. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. My first pick is, surprise, surprise, a YA book. 
It's The Kindred by Alicia Dow. So this is a YA sci-fi novel that's the second book from the author of The Sound of Stars. This isn't a sequel, but it is set in the same world or universe as The Sound of Stars. I haven't read that one, and I didn't feel like I was missing anything, but there are apparently some nods and at least one crossover character, so you don't have to pick up the earlier one to try this one, but if you've read it, you'd probably like it even more. It follows two characters from very different backgrounds who have an inextricable link from birth. So in this society, the upper classes addressed claims of inequality by creating kindred mind pairings. And each upper class child, when they're born, is paired with a lower class child born on the same day. They can hear each other's thoughts, and even if they're nowhere near each other, they're always connected. The idea is that rich people won't be able to ignore the plight of the poor, but so far the system hasn't seemed to actually solve inequality. Joy is from a poor planet and lives her days in obscurity, except that she is kindred to Felix, the Duke. She is an exasperated voice in the Playboy Royal's ear. But when someone in the royal family is assassinated, Felix is an easy target to pin the murder on. He is already in the family's bad books, so it's not a stretch to assume he did it. But he's being framed, and even if he escapes the allegations, he'll be next in line to be killed. So Felix flees, stealing a spaceship and taking Joy along with him. But their plan quickly falls to pieces when they crash land on Earth and can't repair the ship. So while that sounds like a lot of sci-fi elements and politics, this is primarily a romance. Felix and Joy are getting to know each other outside of their mental link. Earth is this alien world that serves as a backdrop for their love story as they explore and learn the joys and horrors of life on Earth. Joy is fat, black, and demisexual, and Felix is bisexual, and we get both of their points of view. There's also a lot of queer side characters. This is a queer normative world where that's not out of the ordinary. The romance between two characters who have a mind connection reminded me of one of my favorite YA sci-fi books, which is the Adaptation Duology by Melinda Lowe. The thing about being human is that you can only experience the world from your own perspective. So it's fascinating to read about relationships that don't have that limitation. They know each other from the inside out. And despite that intimacy and romantic connection, Joy and Felix are very different. They disappoint each other. And while this is a mostly lighthearted romance, there is some depth both in their personal relationship and how the story addresses inequality on and off Earth. If you're interested in a fun, diverse YA romance with just a dash of sci-fi adventure, I think you'll really like this one. I want to give content warnings for racism and fat phobia, including internalized fat phobia. And that's The Kindred by Alicia Dow. You said steals a spaceship and I thought, oh, that sounds good. I could go for that right about now. Just take right? off. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. going in the wrong direction for sure. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that I probably could not pilot a spaceship if I were to try and steal one right now. I can't even drive. <laughs> yeah. I did I did manage to drive a 77 Plymouth Fury, which was the longest model of any sedan ever made wow. you know, for a couple of years. So maybe maybe I could just skim it across the ground. I guess it depends on how big the spaceship is. <laughs> Moving on, my next pick for today is one that is going to be so good for book club discussions because, wow, there's a lot to unpack here. 
It is for people who love messy, complicated characters. It is The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. This is a biting satire about motherhood, social performance, surveillance, and the government. Frida is a woman in her late 30s. She has a daughter, Harriet, who's not yet two. She's co-parenting. Her husband left her just after the baby was born for a younger woman, and now Frida finds herself living alone, taking care of Harriet three and a half days a week. They share custody. Her husband moved in with his girlfriend. So at the beginning of the book, Frida is watching Harriet. Harriet has an earache. She won't stop crying. Nothing seems to help. Frida hasn't slept in days. She's making mistakes at work. She's afraid she's going to lose her job. And Frida makes a horrible decision. I'm not going to tell you what it is, even though it's like in every Goodreads review. I was looking later to see if anybody mentioned it. I'm not going to tell you what she does, uh, because they don't mention it in the description of the book. But Frida makes a terrible decision, and her neighbor turns her in, and she winds up losing Harriet. She doesn't understand... You know, she's like, oh, you know, I just did this thing and, you know, I I made a mistake. You know, Harriet is fine. I do want to say, like, there, no physical harm comes to the child. You know, Harriet is fine. You know, she keeps saying, like, I just made a mistake. I made a mistake. Her lawyer's like, you know, you have to stop saying that you made a mistake. You know, you have to say, like, you had a lapse in judgment because it isn't helping your case. You know, because now, like, Child Protection Services is involved. The You know, the police were called, so she had to go to the police station. She has lost custody of Harriet until they make a ruling on you know, whether or not she is a good mother. And, you know, Frida is having a hard time, like, understanding the severity of what she did. You know, she's like, Harriet is fine. I don't, you know, I made a mistake. I don't understand. But this is a bit of a dystopian novel. So there's a little bit of of surveillance and stuff going on, some Big Brother stuff. Because in order to get Harriet back, Frida is now required to do several things. Um, several, like, severe things, starting with having surveillance set up in her home. She has cameras at all the rooms of her home, and they're watching her at all time, and then they say, like, they're gonna go back and look and see if, like, you know, she's upset enough or responsible enough or, you know, how she behaves at home when the child isn't there. You know, so it's kind of like a performance because she knows that she's being watched, but also, like, she has no privacy in her home now. Um, And then they send her to parent training. That is the school for good mothers of the title, um, because they want to teach her to become a better parent. But will anything that Frida does be enough? Um, This is a look at contemporary parenting and policing. What do you have to do to be a good parent? Who makes a good parent? Um, You see, like, an extreme in in parenting views uh, in her husband's girlfriend, who is um, very young and, you know, is, like, on the opposite end, you know, like, no plastics, no... No food that isn't organic. You know, she has all these ideas about the way that the child should be raised. And meanwhile, like, Frida's like, who are you? You're my husband's new girlfriend. Like, does she even get a say in, like, how the child is raised? But she has an influence over Frida's ex-husband. You know, who makes a good mother? Who gets to who gets to have their children back? You know, it, it, it's... She raises a lot of good questions, the author, about, like, how far should society and the government be allowed to interfere in parenting? You know, and how, with social media... Things that you've done in the past or things that you might mention now, there are so many more eyes watching you. And, you know, there's also uh, an issue with, like, mental illness. Frida stopped taking her medication to treat her depression uh, when she became pregnant, which was a move that her husband was very supportive of, but then left her because he said that, you know, she was unstable and her her attitude while she was pregnant drove him away, which you just want to, you know, grab him and shake him very, very, very hard. 
it's about judgment and hypocrisy, you know, like the the expectations placed on the mother versus the father, um, and also racism. Frida is Chinese-American, and the way there's a certain way that society perceives her and the way that her parents have un- unattainable expectations for her. Are people ever ready to be parents? You know, I am 45 years old. I am sitting in Stormtrooper jammies. I stayed up most of the night playing World of Warcraft instead of sleeping. And I am almost 30 years older than my mother was when she had me. And I in no way feel like I could have a child. I do not feel like a responsible adult at all. You know, like, it's amazing to me. Does it make you become more responsible? Is, Is Frida a good mother? You know, she just wants her daughter back. She really doesn't understand why she can't have her daughter back. You know, but will she ever be able to do enough to make that happen? Um, it's so compelling. And you can love her or hate her, you know, sympathize with her or not. But it does raise a lot of important questions. Uh, I do want to give content warnings for mentions of mental illness, postpartum depression, infidelity, and child endangerment. It is The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. I feel like you could do a book club just on complicated mothers and literary fiction of the last couple years. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean... You know, I had very young parents, and we were very poor, and I was a latchkey kid from a very young age, and now when I hear news stories about, you know, parents being arrested for leaving their kids home Mm. alone when they're like 10, 11, 12, I'm like, oh my goodness, that could have been my parents. Like, how different would my life have been, you know, if that had happened? I'm very, even though I don't have children and and I'm not going to have children, like, I'm I'm very interested in stories about motherhood and and its complications. Yeah, totally. Well, I have no good transition, but I have another (laughs) book. (laughs) So a year ago, almost to the day, I recommended Happily Ever Afters by Elise Bryant on this podcast. And now I'm recommending the companion novel, One True Loves. So this follows one of the side characters from Happily Ever Afters, and this takes place after graduation. Again, you definitely don't need to read Happily Ever Afters first. It's just that kind of side character connection. Lenore is confident, artistic, and was an icon at her high-achieving artsy high school. But high school is over, and she's having trouble shouldering her family's expectations. She comes from a family of geniuses that put enough pressure on her, but add to that the standards of Black excellence that she is expected to uphold, and Lenore feels trapped. She is going to university, NYU, undeclared, much to her family's dismay, and she is not sure what the future holds. She is not even sure what she wants. But before she jumps headfirst into school, she has a little reprieve, which is a two-week Mediterranean cruise, except her parents don't really mean it as a break. She is expected to make up her mind about her major by the time she returns. On the cruise, she meets Alex Lee, who is her opposite. He has his life meticulously planned out for the next decade, and he's also a hopeless romantic. Irritation soon turns into something else, though, and Lenore reluctantly finds herself in a love story. She is used to being second best in romance, especially as a black woman with dark skin, and she has written off this possibility for herself. So she is surprised and suspicious about this flirtation. Like Happily Ever Afters, this is a romance, but it's more about the character growth. Although the romance is great, and it doesn't hurt that they're touring some of the most picturesque parts of Europe as they fall for each other, it's not the main focus. It's also nuanced, discussing the complexities of interracial dating, the pressures of Black excellence, and anxiety. 
I find stories set on a cruise so interesting because they're both forced proximity. No matter what you think of this other person, you're stuck in the same boat as them. But they're also traveling the world at the same time. There's both the novelty of an ever-changing setting and the friction of spending most of your time enclosed in the same space. That forced proximity trope always pairs well with Hate to Love, which we also get from Alex and Lenore. It was interesting to see Lenore from her own perspective. Tessa really admires her, but that confident social exterior is only one part of her. This is also a story about Lenora's relationship with her family. She's on the cruise with Wally, her older brother, who seems to have everything figured out. As they travel, though, Lenore realizes that she has some things wrong about her brother. Elise Bryant is an expert at writing YA romances that are swoon-worthy and multifaceted. Last time, I accidentally stayed up until 3 a.m. reading Happily Ever Afters, and this one is just as engrossing. And that's One True Loves by Elise Bryant. That reminds me, I read a book recently that takes place on a cruise, but is very different than probably what you would be interested in reading, Danica. It's just a over-the-top, completely bonkers serial killer novel about this cruise ship (laughs) uh, where everyone's stuck because there's a serial killer on board and, like, where are you going to go? It was called The Stowaway by James Murray and Darren Wearmouth. And Mm -hmm. yeah, if you like just absolutely bananas, ridiculous stories, then um, I highly recommend it. That also sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah. Not a whole lot of like enemies to lovers storylines going on there. (laughs) Just a lot of screaming and gore. Um, So let's see. Where are we in our time here? Oh, it's time for me to talk about another book. My next pick today is Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho. It's a collection of linked stories that follows the lives of two young Taiwanese-American women over decades through love and loss, marriage and divorce. Can you guess their names? That's right. It's Fiona and Jane. They grow up in Los Angeles, and they have one of those friendships where they feel like they'll always be together. They'll always be close. They're like sisters. They share everything. They have hopes and dreams. But a lot about their lives is as different as it is similar. Um, You know, one has a much more stable home life than the other. Uh, One feels a lot more familial obligation than the other. And as they get older, you know, life happens. Relationships get in the way, work and other obligations get in the way. Fiona ends up moving to New York to help care for a sick friend. And Jane is adrift without her. Her father has just died. She feels a lot of guilt over that. Her relationship with her girlfriend is not the best. And with, like, these complications of family, Jane is envious of Fiona's lack of familial obligation, her carefree spirit, the fact that she kind of got away from from this. The structure of the novel is not, or not novel, excuse me, the, the stories, is not quite straightforward. They're almost poetic, and they're very revealing and personal. It was really quite beautiful. It's it's sad, but it's also you know beautiful. It's a lovely book about the very complex nature of friendship and the endurance of such a friendship. You know, I mean, who among us doesn't have a friend that we thought would be our best friend, you know, forever? You know, that we don't even talk to or know where they are now. And it's about identity and, like I said, the differences in their lives. And you know, friendship as it ages, it changes. You know, it's malleable, and it's wonderful, and it's complicated and messy. It's a really fantastic debut. 
I'm seeing it compared to Sally Rooney a lot, which I can neither confirm nor deny because I still have not read Sally Rooney somehow. I feel like everyone has read her, and so I'm like, ah, everyone's read her. I'll get to that someday, and and I still have not read her. Um, So if anyone has a recommendation on where I should start, uh, I would love to hear it. But it's just wonderful. It's not a very long book, and you can enjoy it in an afternoon. Uh, A content warnings for illness and racism. It is Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santángel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Danica, you're up. Hello. <laughs> so my next book also is kind of set on a boat. So that's <laughs> not another cruise story, but almost. And it's Reckless Girls by Rachel Hawkins. I'm not recommending only YA this episode. I do have one thriller wreck, and that's this one. A few years ago, I picked up the Hex Hall series on a whim, mostly just to read something witchy in October, and I ended up being completely pulled in and finishing the series. And since Rachel Hawkins' writing has already convinced me to read a genre I wouldn't usually, I decided to give her thriller a try. I'm always intrigued by those enclosed space thrillers, so when I heard about this one, I had to pick it up. 
This follows six people on an isolated island together, some friends and some strangers, when their island getaway turns deadly. So Lux and Nico are a couple that are hired to take two friends, Brittany and Anna, to a remote island in the South Pacific. The four of them bond on the way, but when they get to the island, there's a boat already there. Jake and Eliza seem like the perfect couple, complete with an impressive catamaran, and the six of them settle in for their vacation. The partying is interrupted by a suspicious stranger sailing by himself, and soon secrets are revealed, someone goes missing, and another turns up dead. Everyone is hiding something, leaving the couples and the longtime friends doubting each other. It turns into a locked room mystery as the people left realize how isolated they are and how few options they have to escape. It's told in two timelines, then and now, which keeps the pace at a fast clip the whole book. This has a lot of suspense, and the island setting is a perfect backdrop. It's already associated with shipwrecks, death, and more. So the story is that during World War II, soldiers were stranded on the island, and it's rumored that they turned to hunting each other for food to survive. So when they were found, the eight survivors were executed for their crimes. This unsettling history is what drew Anna and Brittany to this location as an off-the-beaten-path alternative vacation spot. But the blood-soaked history of the area starts to catch up to them. It's really atmospheric, and the island quickly transforms from beach parties to a claustrophobic trap. There's something about reading about young, fairly well-off people partying, making bad decisions, and then facing danger that is always intriguing. The plot continues to escalate, veering in some unexpected directions, and the ending is controversial. It's the kind of thing some readers love and some hate. So just be prepared for a wild ride. And that's Reckless Girls by Rachel Hawkins. So if you like her witchy stuff, she actually had a couple of books out last year. One, The Wife Upstairs under Rachel Hawkins, but she wrote a witchy romance called The X-Hex under Aaron Sterling, if you were not aware that that was Rachel Hawkins. I heard that was so good. I, I haven't read, read it yet. No. But, <laughs> but that is something to to know about. So <laughs> as you have heard us mention 800 million times now, supply chain and pandemic changing the dates keeps happening. And it's just something that we're going to have to kind of go with here on all the books because there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, so right before we started recording today, one of the books that I was going to talk about, the author went on Instagram and said, hey, my book is now not coming out until February. Uh, so I had to scramble to find something else I had read, but I did not enjoy the other things that I read coming out today, which were not very many, and I'm, I'm not going to talk anymore about them, but... Um, so I'm going to talk about a book now that I am very excited to read. It is at the top of my list for today's uh, new releases, and you'll just have to forgive me. It's it's just something that we're gonna I, we're gonna see it more and more still. So, you know, I organized all of my January fourth titles two weeks ago, and when I went through them again today, I had to move eight of them. So it's still just it's still happening. But now onto the book. Yes, let's talk about the book. It is the High House by Jesse Greengrass. I saw the author talk about it uh, last week, and it sounds really fascinating. It's about four people trying to survive in the midst of an environmental disaster. Friends Carol, Polly, Sally, and Grandy take shelter in a high house as the waters rise around them and learn what they can from its caretaker. A high house is on a hill. They have supplies, but they can't last forever. And then what happens? Uh, it was shortlisted for the 2021 Costa Novel Award, 
Jesse Greengrass's debut site was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And she had a lot of fascinating things to say about environmental fiction, environmental disaster fiction. There's going to be more of it coming. And it just sounded really great. So I'm looking forward to reading The High House by Jesse Greengrass. Speaking of weird publication dates, so my last one actually comes out December 28th, which could I have talked about it last time I was on the podcast? Yes, but I hadn't read it yet. So Um, this is such a weird time for a book release. Almost nothing comes out on December 28th. So I'm worried that it's going to get buried because it came out during that holiday week that doesn't really exist. Uh, So I'm going to talk about it. And that is Midnight Girls by Alicia Jasinska. This is from the author of The Dark Tide, which is another sapphic fantasy book that has a huge following. So I'm sure a lot of people are very excited for this one coming out. It is based on Polish folklore, and the setting is inspired by 18th century Poland. It's also a wintry, snowy setting, so it's a great winter read. There are two main characters, Marinka and Zasha, and they are monster girls. I don't know if this is I don't know if this is a thing outside of queer book spaces, but I know so many people who really want monster romances. So this is again one that is going to scratch a very specific itch for a lot of people. So these are monster girls. They are apprentices to rival witches. They both have different powers associated with times of day. So Marinka is midday and she is fiery, passionate, unpredictable. Zasha is midnight and she is cold and calculating. So because they are apprentices to these two witches, the two yagas who are competing, they have been in competition their whole lives. And now they are both competing for a prince's heart, literally because the heart of a pure prince is strategically valuable to them in different ways. So one of them is trying to impress the witch who took her in as a child. She really values that, values their relationship, and she's trying to show that she can kind of hold her own, participate, and that she is valuable in this uh, taking her in was worthwhile. The other one is trying to get out of the witch's grasp and establish herself as her own power. So both of them are trying to find the prince, murder him, take his heart. That's their prize. They are disguised as regular girls, and their escalating competition threatens to reveal them both. And this city loves to watch monsters burn. So the two of them have been in competition their whole lives, but this really is the pinnacle, and they're not usually in the same space so much. So it just keeps getting more and more over the top. And as they fight over the prince, they realize that they're falling for each other. So this is an enemies to lovers story. It has that cat and mouse game element that Killing Eve fans will love. I think that a lot of people who love Killing Eve will want to pick this one up. If you fall for the villains of stories, you will really enjoy this one. The characters are morally gray at best, and they don't see the error of their ways. They are unrepentant monsters. They are also chaotic. Their competition... And their murder attempts keep escalating, so it's kind of wacky hijinks, but make it murder. It's also a 
slow burn because they are both obsessed with each other, but they're completely oblivious. So they think that they're obsessed with each other because of their rivalry. And it's very obvious from the outside what's happening. I know so many readers who are looking for exactly this kind of story, a monster girl fantasy romance, villains and love, and this chaotic competition plot, as well as the complicated feelings that the main characters are not prepared to face. So again, Killing Eve fans, people who love women villains especially, will love this. There are also other queer characters. The prince is bisexual. We get some of his story, including an MM friends to enemies to soulmates love story. It is very atmospheric. It takes place during a winter festival, which is a fun backdrop for all the murder attempts. So if you want a fun, murdery winter read, try this one. Content warnings for child abuse, blood, and death. And that is Midnight Girls by Alicia Jasinska. All right. That is a very fun book. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, So those are our first picks for 2022. What are you going to read next? I think that we are both going to read the same author next, which is fun. (laughs) I am reading Murder Most Actual, which is by Alexis Hall, and it's a fun, also a fun murder book. Um, It's like a a Clue-style murder mystery is set at this isolated castle where they go on vacation. It's a lesbian couple who is trying to save their marriage. Their marriage is kind of falling apart, and this was supposed to be a vacation where they repaired it, but then there's a murder. I just started it, and it seems really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I adored it to pieces, and there are are a couple of things that subvert the usual locked room mystery trope that I want to talk about with somebody, but no one has taken me up on that offer. (laughs) And I can't say what they are because they're spoilers. But I am actually going to read The Affair of the Mysterious Letter by Alexis Hall. I had no idea that he was so prolific. I mean, there's like Mm -hmm. boyfriend material and then Rosaline Palmer. And then I read Murder Most Actual. Jen Northington was like, you have to read The Affair of the Mysterious Letter. So I'm definitely going to pick up that one. But in looking that book up, he has like 8 million other books. I had no idea. (laughs) Um, And I also picked up a copy of Oh Honey by Emily R. Austin, who wrote one of my very favorite novels of 2021, Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead. This is her first novel, and I've heard great things about it. Very excited about that. So those are our first reads of the new year, which are technically probably going to be done by the time the show airs (laughs) because we're recording this on the 22nd. And that is it for us today, book lovers. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you to all of you for joining us for another year of All the Books. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com. Tell me your favorite Sally Rooney novel. Tell me, you know, you read Murder Most Actual and let's talk about tropes. Uh, You can find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter at lesbrary, which is L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. 
And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading! reading.